Welcome. I'm glad you chose to join us today. If you have your Bible close to you, please open to the Gospel of Mark in chapter 8. We have been traveling through the Gospel of Mark for some time now uh, in our our time together. And if you're new with us, you can find uh, all the sermons online on our website. And uh, they're going to be in audio form, not video form like this. So uh, however you want to view that, um, we invite you to do that. So it has been my goal through this time to help us clearly see what Mark has wanted the first century reader to understand, but also for us to understand as we look through this, this gospel together. Now, today, you know, we've been dealing with this uh, massive amount of information that's being passed around about COVID-19. Uh, the, this last month has just been um, overwhelming with how many statistics and numbers and, and all kinds of other ideas that have been thrown around about this virus. There has been experts and leaders giving updates continually about this situation. They've been asked very similar questions, um, questions that revolve around really their, their expert opinions. And uh, what you've probably heard are very similar uh, opinions about this situation, but also what you will also hear in maybe the different nations or different experts that give their opinions, they're slightly different in the, the idea of timetable and the length of time this will be around, but also even in how to treat this issue. So there are some things that these experts and leaders agree on, but there's also a lot of things, detail-wise, that they disagree on. And so what do we do with opinions? Well, what we'll see from our text today is that Jesus, he wants to know people's opinion. He's asking questions that are kind of out of character to how he has been working with people. And this is the, really the first time that Jesus has ever asked the, the question of, what is the opinion about me? It seems very strange for Jesus to ask this question because he's never done this until this point. So why is he doing this? Now, as Americans, we don't think this is strange at all. We think opinions matter, and they matter tremendously. We have businesses that, uh, you know, they put out opinion polls and surveys in order to find out what their customers want. And churches do a very similar thing at times. Uh, not saying that's a right thing to do. But as Americans, we believe that it is our God-given right to share our opinions. I mean, we, we have all kinds of avenues now in order to share our opinions, and sometimes that can be detrimental to business or, or even to churches. But we believe it's our God-given right to voice our opinion. We believe that in the, the U.S. Constitution, it, it is there as it governs us for the reason of us getting our opinions out. But I think one thing that needs to be said about our freedom of speech or our opinions is this fact that your right to your opinion doesn't make your opinion right. And hopefully you caught that. Is just because you have an opinion, it doesn't make the opinion that you have a right one. And this is what we will see today. All opinions have the right to be heard, but not all opinions should be followed because not all of them are good and not all of them are right. Our culture today is teaching this idea that everyone's opinions should be equally heard, equally attributed. But this is just not healthy, it's not wise for how to live your life or in how to lead. There are some people that have damaged their reputation, their credibility, because they never have good opinions. They're distorted in how they view things, whether it be in just what reality is. And so they've damaged their credibility. And then we have other people that 
um, give constant and consistent reasoning uh, for why they think or why they do the things they do, and they have credibility to back up their opinions. And so I don't think we should put these two on equal playing ground with one that has damaged reputation versus one that has a credible reputation. So I believe it's also very silly for us to to take everyone's opinion in the church as equal and equal weight to it. Not everyone in the church has uh, an, an equal understanding of what the scriptures teach. And this can easily lead to being manipulated by things that are heretical uh, that are being taught. And then those things that are being accepted because of ignorance are then passed on in ignorance to other people of this is how we should do things here or not do things. And then other people start to buy into that idea, which then leads us to a place where we have a, a whole slew of wrong conclusions of what we should be doing as a church or as individuals. And this is one of the reasons why I think a plurality of eldership is really important to the local church, not just because this is the, the biblical instruction of how a church should be organized, which is a really important one, but also because the men that make up your eldership should have the credibility based upon not their experience or their opinions, but of how they've handled the Word of God. And this is so important to how we view people's opinions inside of the church. Is their opinions coming from a place where they've examined the Word of God and they've made decisions out of that examination, or is it simply out of their life experience or their talent or their skill set or their creativity, or is it because they have handled the Word of God with accuracy and with a sense of fear in that? So... Let's jump into our text today and see why Jesus is asking people's opinions. Why does he care about people's opinions? Why does he care about the disciples' opinion? Well, if you're there in Mark chapter 8, look at verse 27. And we're going to be going through verse 30. It says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others said, Elijah. And others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This is the first time that a human has declared Jesus as the Christ. Now, earlier on in Mark's gospel, we've seen there's been declarations by God the Father about Jesus and a title given to him at his baptism. We've also heard from the demons declaring about Jesus' identity. Uh, the demons in chapter 1 call him the Holy One of God. In chapter 3, they call him the Son of God. And these titles, they were completely accurate, but they were insufficient for saving faith. Now, let me ask you this question. Does a title mean anything if there is no real belief behind it? Does simply having a title, possessing a title, and being called a title, does that necessitate anything if there's not real belief behind it? Well, as Mark has given us five different titles of Jesus through his writing, we see from the very first verse of the very first chapter, he says, in his opinion, his view of Jesus, he says, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then we hear from God the Father, my beloved Son, in verse 11 of chapter 1. Then in verse 24 of chapter 1, the demons say, the Holy One of God. And then again, in chapter 3, verse 11, the Son of God. And then later in chapter 5, verse 7, we have the fifth title that's given of Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. 
these titles are given to Jesus, but not all of them that are giving the title to Jesus really have a belief in him, a saving belief in Jesus. So here in this passage, this term Christ appears, and appears one more time uh, other than the very first verse of the very first chapter. And again, this is kind of a unique moment that's happening. And the first verse in the first chapter, I believe it's kind of Mark's thesis statement to really the whole writing of his gospel. And here, this term that's used, the Christ, it is the English translation of the Greek, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew term Messiah. And so the Messiah and the Christ, they mean the same thing, just from different languages, and they mean the anointed one. And so whenever Peter says the Christ here, he's meaning the anointed one of God. Now, there's a lot of theories as to who or what the Messiah would be. Lots of theories in this time with Jesus. But what they got with Jesus was not at all what the leaders and the people of the Jews expected. They thought he would fit inside of this mold that they had created for him, but he, he doesn't. He doesn't fit inside of the box in which they thought he could, he could fit down inside of, but he just doesn't fit in there at all. And so inside of Judaism, there were all kinds of differing opinions as to what the Messiah would be or who he would be, what he would do. And there's a lot of debate among the scholars and the experts of who the Messiah is or would be. There was a level of spiritual blindness that really no one could seem to overcome when it came to Jesus. When they looked at Jesus, they viewed Jesus and what he did, what he said, and how he acted, how he thought. They, they just couldn't see that he really was the Christ. People could see him, but they struggled to see him clearly. And so the titles of Jesus matter. They really do matter. All five of these titles that are given before chapter 8, they do matter about who he is. But real faith in those titles means that it has to be followed with much faith as well. So it's not just a simple title that matters, but the, the faith behind it has to be there as well. I love my title, not the pastor title that I have, but the title of Daddy. I love it whenever I come home and my kids say, Daddy's home, and they're excited in that. But they don't call me Daddy because that's the title in which I require them to call me. It's because they believe that to be true. They believe me to be their Daddy, and they express that with the the title. And so their sense of security, their affection toward me, it's not bound up in the title that I have, but it's bound up in the meaning of that title behind it. And I think the same thing is true when we look at Jesus being the Christ, the Messiah. It matters what's behind that when you declare that. Now I want to walk back through this passage that we have and, and show you just a few things that are really important, I think, in, in how we view what's being communicated to us. Look back at verse 27. In verse 27, it tells us that there's a new location in which Jesus and his disciples go to. It's the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, this is an interesting place for Jesus to take his disciples to. It's directly north of the Sea of Galilee. It's a place that, again, as a Jew, you don't really vacation to because it is a pagan place. It is set on an international highway between Mesopotamia and Egypt, which was uh, creating a lot of traffic through the city. A lot of people were moving there, uh, moving through that place, and they were worshiping there as well. This is also a location that Herod the Great, he had built a temple here to honor Caesar Augustus. Now, <clears throat> this temple that was built here, it was built for a Greek god named Pan. Now, 
in this place, there's a very large cave that's there. And there used to be water that would flow through that cave from Mount Hermon. And this cave, it was thought to be the gateway to the underworld to this god Pan. So what they would do, they would bring a goat to this spot, they would sacrifice the goat, they would then throw the goat into the water, and if the goat sank, then Pan had received your offering, your sacrifice. But if the goat floated, then Pan had rejected it. And so the next logical step for them to do in this process of sacrifice and appeasing this god was then to bring a child to this place, to this water, and throw the child in. This was an extremely pagan place. It was filled with idolatry and hostility toward Judaism and toward the scriptures. It was a place that was filled with worship, but it was idol worship, evil, wicked worship. This is a place where children were being sacrificed to a false god, a god that could do nothing, could respond in no way, could help them in no way because he did not exist. It is in this place that Jesus asked the question of his disciples that reveals that he is the Messiah. It is in this place that the Son of God will start to teach his followers that he is going to be sacrificed for their sake. He is going to be the one, so to speak, thrown into the waters. What a contrast that's being made here with Jesus bringing his disciples, these men, to this spot. The contrast of pagan ritual and practice versus what he is going to do as Messiah. What he must do for them in order to save them and to appease the wrath of God. But also what he's going to do for the rest of humanity's sake. So Jesus then, in verse 27, he asked the disciples the question. And the question is, who do people say that I am? And in this passage, whenever his disciples hear this question, uh, this shouldn't really surprise them because they've, they've heard questions like this before. And this is a, a test, so to speak. They've been around Jesus for two and a half years or so. Uh, they would easily be able to answer this because of their training, because of what they've been taught. They should easily be able to answer a question such as this because they've, they've been around the crowds. They've heard people speak. And this test that Jesus gives him, gives these guys here is basically, what's the popular opinion about me? And how do they respond? Well, they respond, well, what they've heard. John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. If we see this earlier in Mark, in Mark chapter 6, where it says this in verses 14 and 15, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. People had their opinions of Jesus. The, the disciples were hearing these opinions. But of course, none of these opinions were accurate. Herod the Tetrarch, which is the son of Herod the Great, he believed that John the Baptist had been reincarnated in some way in the form of Jesus, and that's why he had these kinds of powers. Others believed that it was Elijah, or at least Elijah's spirit, that had come back in Jesus, and this is how he was doing these miraculous things. And others said, well, it's neither one of those. It's probably just one of the other prophets. It's, it's something else. And none of them were accurate. None of these opinions were right. And none of them should be listened to. This seems to be the popular opinion about who Jesus was. But the popular opinion 
doesn't mean that it's the right opinion. And this is very similar to what I was saying before about people's individual opinions. Just because you have an opinion doesn't make it right. And just because you agree with the most popular opinions doesn't make it right either. To use the argument or the logic of, well, most Christians would agree with me, doesn't mean that you or they are correct in their thinking. If we rely upon the masses' opinion to verify whether or not we are right, then we are wading into very, very dangerous waters. Just because majority rules doesn't mean that the majority is right. Let's be very careful and very cautious whenever we hear this term Christian labeled on top of things. We just instantly buy them off the shelf or download them or listen to them because, well, it's a Christian so-and-so. I think this is a very dangerous thing to do. Again, just because it's popular, just because it's, it's a mainstream kind of idea or thought, doesn't necessitate that it's right. So, how does Jesus respond to this? Well, look at verse 29. It says, And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? The second question on the test. The second question that Jesus asked his disciples. Again, it shouldn't be hard. They've been asking themselves this question for a while. Back in Mark chapter 4, verse 41, while they were out on the boat in the middle of a storm, and Jesus calms the storm with peace, be still. They're in awe and in fear of who Jesus is, and they ask themselves the question of, who then is this? Who is this man? This is a question they're very familiar with because they've been asking themselves the question. And this question that Jesus asked here, it's very powerful and it's very pointed. It gets exactly to, to the heart of what they really believe about him. It is the question that really hangs over us today as well. Who do you say Jesus is? The answer that you give is extremely important. Now Peter here, he answers Jesus and he gives a correct answer there in verse 29. Peter answered him, you are the Christ. This term Christ, this appears only a second time here in Mark's writing. But here Mark's opening thesis, it's revealed as a pinnacle moment in Mark's gospel. That all these titles that have been moving toward this point, in all of the stories, all the things that have been happening, they're moving to this pinnacle moment in Mark's writing. And so how we should view this, and how we should view this statement that Peter gives, we should view it as a groundbreaking statement. We should view it as a groundbreaking revelation to Peter and his disciples. This is a big moment, a pinnacle moment. And we can kind of break up Mark's gospel in kind of just almost two sections here. In the first section being up until this point, and then the second from this point. It's kind of the, the back side of this statement. But there's something that Matthew inserts in his gospel, in his writing, about what Jesus says that's very interesting about Peter's revelation. In Matthew chapter 16, which is the parallel account to Mark chapter 8, in verse 17, Matthew writes this, And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter's revelation of Jesus, um, it was real, it was honest, it was true, but it didn't come from Jesus asking the right question at the right time to Peter. 
This revelation was not because of connecting the dots. It was not because of Peter's intelligence. It wasn't because of his reasoning or his experiences. This was a supernatural work of God to bring about the revelation. To make a confession like this, it requires divine intervention in the person's mind and heart. As we saw last week with the healing of this blind man, that Jesus, he brought sight to this man in stages. This is what's happening in this moment. This is what's been happening up until this moment. That the disciples, they've been seeing Jesus, but it's, it's not clear. It's not accurate. It's blurry. And here in this moment, it's almost as the veil is pulled back for Peter to look clearly at who Jesus is. Peter is not an exception, though, to this uh, this revelation. He's not an exception to how someone really sees clearly who Jesus is. And I want to take you to Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, where Paul writes this about this revelation. It says, Therefore I want you to understand that no one speaks in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So Paul is teaching that when someone has the Spirit of God in them, they cannot say that Jesus is accursed or that they reject Jesus because the Spirit is in them. The Holy Spirit is in them. But they also cannot proclaim Jesus as their Lord unless it's by the work of the Holy Spirit. So Paul is saying the same thing that Jesus has taught Nicodemus in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus came to him at night about how, how does regeneration happen? How does new birth happen? And he tells him it's the work of the Spirit. This also aligns with what Jesus taught in John chapter 6 verse 44 where he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus gives even more clarity to his role in in revealing who can come to God the Father back in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, verse 27, where he says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So if we could take these verses that are here, out of Mark, out of Matthew, out of John, out of 1 Corinthians, and we could kind of compact them into just a statement, I think we could say this, that we can only know the Father through the Son, and we can only know the Son through the Holy Spirit. We can only know the Father through the Son, we can only know the Son through the Holy Spirit. So the understanding that Peter has in this moment was a gracious act by God the Father, to reveal God the Son by way of God the Holy Spirit. No one will come to a clear understanding of Jesus Christ on their own accord. This removal of darkness, this removal of blindness, it does not happen based upon dot connecting or intellect or upon reasoning or upon experiences but only because of the work of the Holy Spirit in a person to see and understand that Jesus is the Christ. It's not just a matter of intellect. It's a matter of change that happens. There have been many trends through the centuries in regards to how people think of Jesus. There's all kinds of groups that come along and distort what the Bible has to say and teach about who Jesus is. One example of this that we've seen through history is the feminist movement that has adopted Jesus as the empowering figure for them and that he is an example of equality for women. 
But what they have done with the teachings and the examples of Jesus is that they've taken it out of context to fit their presuppositions. And racist groups did the same thing with Jesus. Adolf Hitler is a prime example of how this played out in history. Hitler viewed Jesus through his presupposition of racism toward the Jews and basically anybody else that was not of the Aryan race. His understanding of what Jesus taught and even how Jesus died was distorted by Hitler's hatred of these groups of people. But please don't think that it's only these radical groups or, or groups like this that distort and twist who Jesus really is. If we look at the storyline of Mark so far, we see different groups of people who have all struggled with clarity on who Jesus is, with the right perspective of who Jesus is. One group is the Pharisees. The Pharisees were, again, a group of people that were super religious. They, they knew the scriptures better than probably any of us do. Even they would have been able to connect dots. They could have logically and intellectually argued from the scriptures probably better than most of us could. But they were extremely skeptical and they rejected Jesus as Messiah. Why? Because it's not based upon intellect or upon ability. The Pharisees rejected him. They were blind. Uh, we have another group, the crowds. They loved his miracles. They loved the benefit that Jesus would bring to their physical life. They, they loved being around Jesus because they, they saw amazing things. They experienced amazing things. And even some of them believed him to be the Christ, to be the Messiah. Some of them believed that he was this, but they had a distorted view of that. They believed that he was going to fix all their physical problems. All their food problems, their health problems, their wealth problems. He was going to remove it all from them if they were just following. But we see what happens with this group of people, these crowds, these followers of Jesus, and I would say even fans of Jesus, in John chapter 6. Because Jesus loses the majority of the people that are following him in John chapter 6. He teaches things that they don't want to hear. He made them feel uncomfortable and they left. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and says, do you want to leave too? And they respond with, where would we go? You have the words of life. And so let's talk about the disciples, this third group, that they're really amazed at the fact that they've been part of this journey with Jesus. They, they have been part of these unbelievable moments, whether it be Jesus saving their life or Jesus saving other people's life or raising them from the dead or, or feeding 5,000 to 4,000 people. They're amazed to be part of this. They believe him to be the Messiah. They believe him to be the Christ. But like the crowds, they don't really understand clearly who he is. Because we see this later in Mark's Gospel, chapter 9. In verses 33 through 37, we see there's an argument that breaks out between them about who's the greatest. And the argument is about greatest in this new kingdom that's coming. Thinking that the kingdom of Jesus is going to be similar to the Roman Empire kingdom of, of being with Caesar Augustus or another Caesar. These men had a distorted view of what Jesus was actually going to accomplish. It's also very likely that you have had or have a distorted understanding of Jesus. And the question that Jesus asked his disciples again, it is true for us. Who do you say that I am? Let me ask you, is your belief of Jesus based upon anything other than the supernatural revelation of Jesus Christ? Is your belief because your parents told you that you should believe? Is your belief based upon, well, all of my friends are Christians? 
Is your belief based upon, well, a pastor told me to believe? Please hear what I'm saying. If your belief is merely because of your intellect, your reasoning, your experiences, or other people's, then you're in no better standing with God than the demons, according to James chapter 2, verse 19. Where James says, even the demons believe and shudder. So let me ask you this, this question, this overarching question in relation to the opinion in which you have. What is the distinguishing mark of saving belief, saving faith? What is the distinguishing mark that you have if you claim to be a Christian? What separates your belief or your opinion about Jesus from the rest of the world's belief about Jesus or their opinions? What's the distinguishing mark? Or is there anything that, that would distinguish you from them? Is it simply sincerity? Because we know that the Pharisees, they were sincere about their faith and their sincere belief that Jesus wasn't the Christ. So we know that sincerity is not what saves people. So what is it? Is there something that we can hold on to, we can latch on to and go, okay, I know this is a distinguishing mark to me. Well, the Bible does have an answer for us and it's clear. And the Bible tells us that there's a seal that is put upon us, and it's the seal of the Holy Spirit. Let me take you to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Paul writes this. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Real saving faith in Jesus is accompanied with the seal of the Holy Spirit, which means there's a validation of the relationship in which you now have with the Father. Again, we know the Father through the Son by way of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to take up residency in the believer, which produces the fruits of the Spirit. It's being sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's, it's a gracious gift of God and is where we get our doctrine of eternal security from. It's secured because it's from God. God has done this in us. It is secured because He is the source of security. He has promised something to us. He has promised His Spirit in us. And if we have that, there is a mark upon us that cannot be removed. The seal of the Holy Spirit, it's also seen in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. Paul again writes, And because you are sons of God, uh, let me back up, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Romans chapter 8, 2 Corinthians 1, Ephesians 4. These are all places that, that point to the same truth that the Holy Spirit is the seal that is set upon the believer. This is the distinction mark that we have that separates us out, that we're different. We're not just following a title, but there's real belief that's here. The seal of the Holy Spirit will lead you to become more and more like Jesus. There will be a change, a transformation that happens. True belief in Jesus Christ will be followed with a change of mind, of heart, of actions. This is what happens when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, takes residency in you. You are different. You think different, you talk different, you act different, because you are different. 
if you were to answer Jesus' question today of, who do you say I am? What would you say? Would your answer be nothing more than a title? Well, I believe you're the Christ. I believe you're the Messiah. I believe you're the Son of God. Would it be the same type of belief or opinion that the demons have about Jesus? Leaving you in the same place in which the demons are destined for? Or would your answer be based upon the fact that you have been transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit of God to declare that Jesus is the Christ? What is it that distinguishes your belief, your opinion, from the rest of the world's? And Christian, if, if you can say that it is the Spirit of God that has transformed me and changed me, and, and you know the transformation that's happened, why would you not tell others about that? Why would you not share that with other people? Again, we have a time in which we are restricted by physical location or distance. But even now, as you're watching this, you hear these words. You hopefully are not just hearing my opinion about Jesus, but you are hearing what God's word has told us about Jesus. Please share this with others. Share this with other people that need to know who Jesus is and ask them the question, who do you say Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you? And there's only one right answer to that. There's only one correct answer. So as we close today, I want to pray that you understand who Jesus Christ is and pray that you have the courage and the ability to proclaim the same thing that that Peter does here, that Jesus is the Christ to your friends and family. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the day in which you've given us. It is your day. Lord, every day is yours. Help us not to think more highly of ourselves than we should. Help us to think accurately and rightly of who we are. And God, in that, we thank you for the the gracious gift of your Spirit to us the seal that's been set upon us as believers. Lord, I pray for these people that are watching this, that they would go out with passion in their hearts, with compassion for others, and that they would proclaim the same message of repentance that you proclaimed when you came to this earth. Lord, let us proclaim the good news of Jesus. Let us tell others of this Christ that has come. God, I pray that you would remove the blindness of our community here in Independence, that the majority doesn't know you, that the majority's opinion about you is wrong. God, help us not just to be a, a, a squeaky wheel or a squeaky voice, but a voice of truth, of reason. And God, it's not coming from our opinion, but from your word. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.